Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part two of a three-part study of Judges, chapter three. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along? Please turn to Judges, chapter three. As I wait, you The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's a good thing now and then to, to stop. And You know, God, I know there's probably things in my life that I don't see or acknowledge or even understand, comprehend that are there. Would you bring it out? Would you reveal it? Would you help me to be able to deal with it in a biblical way, to repent of it, and to draw closer to you? And that's for those that are God-seekers that really want to please the Lord, that say, you know, God, and I'm glad, I'm grateful that God reveals things like in stages, that he doesn't like, thank you, Jesus, come into my Lord, you know, my life, be my Lord, and boom, you just see everything one time, it would just knock you over. You'd probably just lay there and drool and not be able to go any farther in your Christian walk. But that through that time and over time, the Lord reveals things gradually, and he allows us to deal with it, just like with the children of Israel. He said, I'm not going to drive them all out at once. I'm going to do it gradually so you can take the land so it doesn't go wild on you. And it's the same thing for us, that if we'll ask the Lord, he'll do that. But a second purpose in this proving, if you will, was that the Lord would instruct them in the ways of war to help them develop a greater appreciation, actually, for the Lord's help in their battles. That they would come to realize just exactly how much God was helping them, that they weren't really doing much at all, even though they were all dressed up and ready to go. That The battle belongs to the Lord, and God's going to fight the battles. Oftentimes people will raise the objection, and I've heard it many times myself, to God commanding the killing or the extermination of these groups of people, including the women and the children, the innocents, if you will, completely wiping them out as God has commanded. And it's because they don't understand the character and the nature of God and the character and the nature of the threat. I liken it to we're watching over a group of kids at a school playground or something like that. And kids are playing in the grass, they're having a great time swinging and yelling and throwing drunk around and and just being kids. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see a puppy run onto the playground. And as your attention is drawn to this puppy running across the playground, you notice at some point that he's foaming from the mouth. And you draw the conclusion that this puppy has rabies. And so right away you sense the threat as the puppy heads towards the children's playground you realize that if this puppy actually bites one of the children, they could contract rabies, and if they didn't die, they'd have to suffer through the treatment and all the stuff that goes with it. At the same time, you realize that this puppy, because it has rabies, it is going to die. It's going to perish either way. In your own mind, you realize you're fully justified in killing this puppy before it gets to the kids to harm them. And it's the same thing with God. God understands that these pagan cultures are sick and they're dying. They are so involved in immoral and wicked practices that will lead to their death. And these practices have completely permeated every part of their culture and do already involve their children. In a sense, there are no innocents. And these kids are going to grow up to do these same things and pass it on to their kids. And in the process, a lot of people are going to suffer 
and die. It's understanding that if the children of Israel are contaminated or infected with these horrid things, that these practices are going to be passed on to the children of Israel, it'll defile them and eventually lead to their death as well. So God would use the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment to destroy this threat to his children. And I'm repeating the same explanation, honestly, that I heard years ago from Pastor Chuck. And I remember hearing that kind of, well, you know, that makes sense. And then one day I ended up uh, watching some YouTube videos on uh, anti-Semitism and things that are going on in the Middle East. And you see the various groups, the Palestinians and Hezbollah, different people like that, and they've got three and four- and five-year-old kids in military uniforms carrying guns and chanting death to Israel and saying all kinds of crummy derogatory names about Israelis and Jewish people and stuff and instilling this hatred in them for anything Jewish. And you can see the plight of the Canaanites. Those kids, they're growing up to be teenagers and to be young adults and to being leaders in their community and indoctrinated in that way. And you see that the same culture that we're reading about this morning is actually happening on the other part of the world today. And that same culture of death. And I don't know you know, how, well, I do. I do know how it's all going to end at some point because the Lord's going to step in. I'm not sure how that will happen in the meantime. But here we see that God does intervene and God uses the nation of Israel to take this threat away and to keep the nation of Israel safe. Well, the sad part is that when the nation of Israel refuses to do, to be obedient to what God says to do, they open themselves up to that threat. They open themselves up to that defilement. And eventually we see, as we go through this, the saddest part is you read through Joshua, they go in and they conquer everything. They are victorious everywhere they go, that no man, as God said, could stand before them. But then after a while, it's amazing that the people groups that they conquered end up conquering them. They didn't do it through military conflict or prowess and tactics. They did it through the good neighbor policy. They just moved in next to them and, and tolerated them and lived around them. And eventually, hey, yeah, come on over, oh, yeah, come on over, whatever. And pretty quick after association, you see the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites, all these guys are now ruling over the nation of Israel, whereas before the nation of Israel ruled over them. You see a complete reversal. Why? Because they compromised. Because they were not obedient to God's word. But they seem so nice. Yeah, they seem so nice. It's like a baby rattlesnake. is cute. <laughs> Have you ever had a baby rattlesnake? I picked up a baby rattlesnake one time and didn't know what it was. Oh, what a cute little snake. <laughs> they can hurt you. And you've got to be very careful. Now, looking at verses uh, 5 through 7, we read, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Baalim, and the groves. The children of Israel dwelt among, they tolerated the Canaanites. And again, I kind of go back to this good neighbor policy. And eventually, because of all that, they end up, as it says there in verse 6, they serve their gods. Can you believe that? They've gone from walking with the Lord to now serving these pagan gods. They took the daughters of the pagan non-believers to be wives for their sons, and they gave their own daughters to be wives to their sons. In a sense, throwing these innocent girls to the wolves, intermarrying. And then, you know, I can't fathom this. I can't imagine taking one of my daughters and just going, oh, yeah, and knowing I can't even talk to you about what they did. I can't even talk to you about their practices and, and the, the evil things that they did. And to say, oh, yeah, and there's my precious daughter. My daughter would never marry a guy like that, not over my living body. <laughs> you know? And yet that's the compromise that they made. 
serving Baal, meaning they sacrificed their children and worshipped in the groves. I mentioned last week about the pagan goddess Ashtoreth was worshipped in the groves. The groves are basically outdoor temples. Sometimes they were carved in stone. They would call them the quarries. Sometimes they were carved you know, out of trees, out of wood. But basically uh, giant phallic symbols, and they would have these pagan sexual rituals and stuff. And that's you know how they proposed to worship. And all these different things are proposed. And it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. No kidding. In verse 7 it says, And they forgot the Lord their God, which is what actually led to these other things. You know, non-believers act as if there is no God. Non-believers act as if there's no repercussion or consequence to their sin because they have no concept of God. But we're talking about a nation that revered God, that feared God, that was born of God. And for them to turn away and to forget God? I mean, how do you do that? How do you forget your father or your mother? How do you forget your children or your husband or your wife? How do you forget it's seemingly a very difficult thing, but what you do is you just make a lot of distance. You know, I don't know how this happened exactly, but I can tell you what not to do. When we spend time in God's Word, when we spend time in our daily devotions, it should be a daily reminder of who God is. If you're in the Bible every day, you're reminded every day that God is real, that God is there, and God is with you, and that God loves you, and it's a constant reminder of God. When we meditate in His Word, which should be a constant activity for us as Christians, it's also a constant reminder about God, isn't it? It's hard to forget about God if you're meditating in his word. When we spend time in prayer, there's that consciousness of God. Who are we praying to? It's funny, sometimes in prayer meetings, people will forget, kind of lose track of things, and pretty quick it's like they're talking to me versus talking to God. When we're really praying and connecting with God, it's a reminder that God is there. When we spend time in fellowship, whether it's corporately here at church or we get together with other Christian families or different things, and it's all Christians involved, that's a constant reminder that God is there. It's, you can't forget God in the midst of that. When we serve the Lord, when we, when we find our ministry, when we find the thing that God wants us to do, again, and I've been there where I'm, I'm doing something. I'm in ministry. And I'll get to that point a couple times. Why am I doing this? Oh, yeah, I'm serving the Lord. <laughs> There's other times I'm just happily serving the Lord, and I'm just doing whatever he wants me to do, and I'm whistling, I'm humming a hymn or singing a, a spiritual song, and again, it's that constant reminder of God. And notice I'm not telling you how to forget God, I'm telling you how to remember God. Okay, if you do all these things, God will be in the forefront of your mind all the time, and that's what we want. We want to have that perspective on life. God's ways are best. If we're going to know life, I mean real life, and enjoy long life as God has promised us, then we need to keep God's word. And it's a good life. Being obedient to God, it's not always easy, and it's not always fun, but there's that peace that surpasses all understanding. There's that peace of knowing that you're right with God, and that's a good life. That's what God wants for us. But then we get to verse 8, and the first word in that sentence is therefore. Now, when you get to the therefore in a scripture, it means because of all the things we've just said, okay? It's almost like cause and effect, okay? First seven verses are going to be the cause, and now in verse 8, we have the effect. Therefore, the effect, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, so again, they're beginning to reap what they've sown. And that can be a difficult thing. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And the children of Israel 
have been sowing to the flesh for quite a while. And God now is allowing them. If you think you've got a bad boss at work or or a mean landlord or whoever you can relate to in this way, it's one thing to work for someone or to serve under somebody that's unreasonable or demanding, all those kinds of things. It's something else to serve under somebody that wants to grind you down, that wants to mess up your day every day, that wants to completely turn your life around and doesn't care for you one whit. And that's what these guys are. God is bringing in. He's from Mesopotamia. He's from Assyria, essentially. (laughs) Later on, we're going to get into stories about the Assyrians and how they treated their prisoners and their captives and stuff. And it's very, very challenging, very difficult, very gross. And this guy, you know, for me, it's kind of funny. They put his name four times in these four verses, and it's a very difficult name to pronounce. But um, Chushan Rishathiam, his name means twice. His name is Chushan. But his name, this whole long name, means twice-wicked Chushan. It's more of a derogatory term than an actual name or title. It's more like an epithet. (laughs) In the Jewish language, in Hebrew, it's impossible to curse or to cuss. If you go to Israel today and somebody wants to cuss you out, they're going to have to do it in French or English or German or Arabic or something because there's no curse words in Hebrew. So the the worst they could do is say, you're evil or you're a dog or you're ugly or, or whatever. I don't know. They've got to use a regular word. There's no curse words in Hebrew. And so as we read about it here, they give him this title, twice evil, Chushan. That means he was a bad dude. That means he was an evil man. And the children of Israel sold into his hand for eight years. Sold. That means lock, stock, and barrel. There's nothing left. And Solomon wrote to us in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. He said that righteousness exalts a nation, but that sin is a reproach to any people. And that is so true. And I think that we're, to some degree, we're living that out even today. That righteousness does exalt a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. Then we get to verse 9. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. It says that the children of Israel cried out and that God raised up this deliverer, Othniel. But prayer takes many forms. Okay, sometimes you can pray silently in your own heart. You're in a situation, you just wherever you're at, you're praying. Sometimes you pray out loud by yourself. Sometimes we pray corporately. Sometimes, and the word cry out here, it's the same word that would be used of a woman crying out in delivery and birth pangs. Now, I don't know how many of you have been around a hospital birthing room or whatever, you know, OB ward, but I've been there a few times, and when I've heard a woman crying out, it's usually not, oh, I pray this baby comes now. (laughs) It's more like, man, I didn't know she had lungs like that. (laughs) And that's how the children of Israel are crying out. There's nothing being held back. It's unabashed, God, I need you. I'm so sorry, whatever. And that's the sense of when the children of Israel cried out. It wasn't like, oh, it should be nice if I stop being oppressed. They were on their face, and it's sincere. And so they're crying out in humility before God, in essence telling God that they need him. And the cool part is, God heard their cry. He hears the cry of his children. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. I had to pray about before I was even going to use this reference because I'm reading this and I go, well, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And I'm thinking, (laughs) are they righteous? And I'm kind of going, eh, this is all because of unrighteousness. But God doesn't view things the way that we do. See, I'd have to ask myself, am I righteous? Does God hear my prayers? And go, I'm not, well, surprise, I'm not always righteous. Okay, the only righteousness I have is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But God the Father looks at me not through my righteousness, but through his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. And he looks at me not as I am today, but the way that I am in glory with him, 
he looks at the children of Israel the same way. Not the way they are then, because they're sinful creatures. He looks at them down the road through the righteousness of Jesus, and that's why he hears their prayers. And so what happens? God raises up a deliverer, Othniel. Now, the name Othniel is really cool. You look at some of these names, kind of go, I don't know if I'd want that name for my firstborn. But Othniel means the strength of God. That's a cool name. It's also been translated as the Lion of God. Interesting that God will raise up 12 different men and one woman to be judges over the nation. But the first one is from the tribe of Judah, whose name is the strength of God or the lion of God. And it reminds me so much of our deliverer, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ himself, that he's the first and the last. He's the first in all things. And so, again, that reminder. But then we get to verse 10. And verse 10 reads, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, went out to war, and the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathim. So God raises up Othniel. Othniel goes basically out to war, and, and God delivers them into his hand. But first, what takes place? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Zechariah tells us in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, he says, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Othniel, I'm sure, was a great guy. Othniel, if you recall, I mean, Caleb said, Hey, you know, whoever takes that city, I'll give him my daughter to be his wife. And Othniel, and that's me, goes in there. And it wasn't just any old city, it was a city with giants. Othniel was a brave guy. Othniel was a capable guy, but you know what? Unless we read that verse that the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him, I don't think we'd be reading the rest of this. Because Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing. And as skilled as he was as a warrior, and as brave as he was, unless he's got the Spirit of God working in him, it'll come to nothing. And so we see, though, that it does come to something, that God blesses him. And then we get to verse 11, and it says, And the land had rest forty years. That one battle, that one confrontation, they've been under subjugation for eight years. Now they're at rest for 40 years. But then we read those words, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Ominous words because of what we read in verse 12. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because he had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So as soon as Othniel is dead, the children of Israel basically went right back to their old ways, right back to what I would refer to as their natural ways. You see, apart from God, that's what we do. Apart from the Holy Spirit living in us, we do what's natural to us. So many times I've been asked by people, why did this person do that or that person do that, whatever, you know, and, and speaking of non-believers, they go, well, you're looking at a non-believer doing what non-believers do. There's no restraint. There's no respect for God. There's no fear of God. What would restrain them from doing that except for the law and those kinds of things? And when people aren't bound by that, non-believers do what non-believers do, and that's they sin. <laughs> they just do all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's not the case. And it's the case for us when we don't have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Apart from God, that's what we do because we're either going to be under control of the Spirit or we're going to be under control of the flesh. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. I mean, we just wander. Jeremiah the prophet tells us in Jeremiah 10:23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. Now, no man likes to hear that. Most of us, and I think some of the younger people in this room can relate, don't you look forward to turning 18? Or first you look forward to turning 16 so you can drive. 
okay? And then you look forward to turning 18 so you can drive wherever you want, okay? You think. <laughs> you forget that you've got to pay for gas insurance and stuff. But that comes when you're about 19 when you figure that out. But uh, we all want to call the shots. Well, you know, the, the architect, the master of our destiny. That's not how it always works out. And we learn that, Lord, you're so much smarter than I am. Lord, I've messed up my life. Lord, I called the shots for quite a while, actually. I did for my life. Where did it land me? <laughs> it landed me in a place of desperation, a place of realizing I'm a fool and crying out to God and asking him to take over. So it's not in man to direct his own steps. I've always been interested, an admirer, I should say, of military aircraft. When I was a kid, I built model airplanes and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, in World War I, if you look at the aircraft of that day, you know, the biplanes, the Sopwith camels, that kind of stuff, very simple, very kind of rudimentary. You know, they had a, a throttle and a stick and some levers for things, and the, the rudder in the back and all that stuff, flaps and junk. You know, half an hour of instruction, and those guys were in the cockpit flying that thing around. Pretty simple. And then you get to World War II and some pretty cool-looking airplanes, you know, P-51 Mustangs and P-38s and stuff. But they were faster, they were bigger, and they had a lot more guns. Way cool. But now you look at what they've got today, F-16s, F-18s, stealth fighters, all that kind of junk. But they've gotten more and more sophisticated with their avionics and all that stuff. And you know that a pilot can't fly the plane by himself anymore. There's several onboard computers that, because it's too sophisticated, things have to happen too fast. So you've got these computers in there that are helping the plane fly. And without the computers operating in those jets, they would fall out of the sky like a rock. And the analogy I want to draw is that without the Holy Spirit, our operating system working in us, we will fall from the sky like a rock as well. We'll hit the ground every time. We need the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us. And that's the direction that we need in our lives. And so without that third part of our triunity working in us, you know, we're body, soul, and spirit. And unless we're born again of the Spirit, we're going to do the same thing that the world does. But notice in these passages here that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. That always bothers me when the Lord turns from strengthening his people <laughs> to strengthening the enemies of his people. That means that something bad is about to happen. God always does that with a purpose, and that's to draw the next generation or that generation to repentance. Whenever God raises up an opposing force in our lives, we should ask, God, why are you doing that? <laughs> what am I supposed to learn from this? And so often we're prone to despising the instrument that God would use. And it's a very difficult lesson for me to learn, not to despise the instrument that God would use in my life to correct me, to chasten me, to train me. And when I start to go through trials or things aren't going my way, I sometimes I've got to step back and go, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And here we see that God is raising up, strengthening Eglon, the king of Moab, because he wants to do something good for his children. It'll be painful, it'll be difficult, but ultimately he's using it for their good and for our good when he does it, because God is good. His motives are always love for us. Then we look at verses 13 and 14, and it says, And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, these are traditional perennial enemies of Israel, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees, which is the city of Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So the Lord raises up Ammon and Amalek. They're victorious over the Israelites. They take Jericho. Now they're oppressed by Eglon, the king of Moab. Notice that the first time this happened, it was for eight years. This is the second time now, and it's for 18 years. You ever have that situation with your kids where you deal with something and maybe you correct them or whatever and then they do the very same thing, like turn around 10 minutes later, an hour later, whatever, do the exact same thing? You say, well, hang on, that's just one swallow. No, no, 
with my kids, well, if one didn't do the trick, I guess a couple more might help. And so that's kind of the, the tactics that the Lord is using at this point. But you think about God raising up the king, Eglon, the king of Moab. In Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist tells us, For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he sets up another. You know, when we see people rise to prominence or political power or different things, people get promoted at work, however that works, and there's times when you, you kind of look and go, wow, how did that happen? And we have to understand that promotion comes from the Lord. And we can complain about, as an example, our, maybe our political leaders or different things like that. But maybe God raised that person up to teach us a lesson somehow. Maybe God raised that person up to cause us to cry out to him, to look for deliverance, and, and to get serious about walking with him, and, and to remember, to remind us that, hey, we haven't been obedient to what he's called us to do. And so oftentimes, I'm sure we want to complain about different things, but God wants to use that in our lives so that we'll call out to him and we'll learn the lessons that he's actually teaching the nation of Israel. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part two of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter three. Please join us again next time for the conclusion as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you may